Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Thanksgiving is an American holiday with, at best, a complicated history. Rooted in colonization and stolen land, it is also a time when families often come together and many of us reflect on the things for which we are grateful. It is this gratitude that we'll focus on today. Not Thanksgiving, the holiday, but gratitude, the emotion. We asked you, our listeners, to submit stories of gratitude and you came through. In this episode, we'll hear from a variety of writers and poets and everyday people with the things for which they are grateful. When you change yourself, you change the world. You have my gratitude. And gratitude is gold. I read and taught about gratitude practices specifically as a well-being strategy. And even though I knew the positive effects, I had never seriously practiced them myself. Is it really the happy people that are grateful? We all know quite a number of people who have everything that it would take to be happy, and they are not happy because they want something else, so they want more of the same. What I found, you know, 12 years of research, um, 11,000 pieces of data, I, ha- I did not interview in all that time a person who would describe themselves as joyful or describe their lives as joyous who did not actively practice gratitude. Our first story of gratitude comes from Kathy Hannes. Kathy is a blogger and a host of the Hello Cancer Friends podcast who shared with us her story about living her best life after being diagnosed with cancer. She's an active fundraiser for Gilda's Club, and she lives with her daughter, Willow, and husband, Tom, in Madison, Wisconsin. I was diagnosed with stage 3 operable pancreatic cancer in December of 2019. I was told I had months to live. My tumor was the size of a small football, and it took over my spleen completely. I was very sick. When my genetic testing of my tumor came back positive of 332 different mutations, my oncologist was excited to try a trial drug of immunotherapy. I started this treatment on March 13, 2020. My tumor shrunk immensely within the first few months. Eventually, it stopped shrinking, but it is much smaller and my condition has been stable since that time. 
I am so grateful for all the research that has been done in this field. My drug was available only two months before my diagnosis. It has kept me going for my daughter, who is now seven years old. I'm also grateful for the Affordable Care Act, as both my husband and I are self-employed, and we would probably be out on the streets without health insurance. I'm grateful for my doctors and entire care team. I'm also grateful for the outpouring of support from friends, family, and people I don't even know. It has inspired me to blog and also to start my podcast called Hello Cancer Friends. And its purpose is to bring people together that have been touched by cancer to share and just be there for each other. Lastly, I'm so grateful I have found my purpose and that I'm living my best life. Next, we have a poem from Anna Grady. Anna is a second-year student in writing, literature, and publishing program at Emerson College. She's the first of several Emerson students who will be featured in this episode. Here she reads her poem, Hope is Making Its Way Back to Me. Hi, I'm Anna Grady. I'm a sophomore at Emerson College in the Writing, Literature, and Publishing program, and this is my poem, Hope is Making Its Way Back to Me. I want to live within youth forever. I want it tattooed all over my body so that I never forget it, so that I can trace the outlines of my now-taught flesh until it becomes saggy and worn. I wake up mumbling of stained-glass windows in the memory of someone I no longer know. And one day, I will be driving down the road and pull up next to a group of kids. They'll look just like me, and I'll realize then that they're breathing and inhaling the same life that I am. The bright orange of dawn will turn to the cool blue of day. Maybe then I'll realize it doesn't have to be over just quite yet. Our next Emerson student is Deanna Costa, who reads her essay, Gratitude. Deanna is a graduate student studying publishing and writing, She is also an alumni of Boston University's College of Communication, where she earned a B.S. in journalism in 2018. She currently lives in Boston with her husband, Michael, and their two cats, Calamari and Anchovy. Gratitude, like any other word, has roots. And much like roots, my gratitude for life has slowly meandered and stretched itself deeper into the soil beneath my feet as I've grown. Each day, month, and year has lent a new reason for being thankful, despite the many storms I've weathered along the way. Almost one year ago, on Thanksgiving of all days, my gratitude seedling shot up overnight into a mighty pine tree, specifically a loblolly pine. Imagine an ornate kind of grand old tree, one that looks like a real-life version of the metaphorical family tree we've all heard so much about. My gratitude takes shape as a family tree thanks to another well-seasoned word with literal roots, ancestry. Two days before Thanksgiving, I spent 13 consecutive hours hunched over my laptop scrolling through lists of DNA matches in a daze. My husband gently attempted to nudge me out of my stupor with anything he could find in the fridge or the entertainment center, but I was on a mission that I could not interrupt. I had no idea what I was looking for or why I couldn't stop looking. I recognized a few relatives listed on the site 
but most of my matches were strangers to me then. As ironic as the situation could be, the closest DNA match was also the most elusive. This potential half-sibling, aunt, uncle, or grandparent was mysteriously going by HH. No last name, no location, no age. Beyond the matches, my ancestral map was just as perplexing. I was raised in upstate New York, save for a brief stint in the Piedmont of North Carolina. My maternal side are all Northeasterners, aside from a few offshoots that remain in NC. Theoretically, my father's side is from New England by way of Wisconsin. Why, then, did the map display a migration from the Old World to the Deep South? The big break in the case, the night that my gratitude tree finally grew tall, came in the form of a response to a jumbled message that I sent to a third cousin after my 13-hour spree. She was explaining her husband's relation to our common kin when suddenly the light bulb struck us. As it shattered, her questions turned to daggers. Was there any chance that my mother was in the Navy in a certain place at a certain time? Yes, yes, and yes. Finally, the truth had been pieced together with enough facts and memories to tell the authentic story of my conception, or as close to accurate as I'll ever get. The man that I thought was my father for 25 years was a genetic stranger to me after all. Simultaneously, the stranger that I found myself emailing at midnight on Thanksgiving in the middle of a pandemic was my real dad. On first consideration, the situation does not sound particularly conducive to gratitude. Yet the cascade of tears, love, acceptance, and bonding that has followed that fateful night continues to drench my soil and grow my pine. I am certain for many reasons that I would not be living in this wonderful new reality with my family if it weren't for Ancestry DNA. I'll never be able to thank them for their services, advancements, and genetic technology enough, though I do intend to try in some fashion someday. I also plan to spend every day of the rest of my life working to adequately thank my dad, stepmama, Grandma, siblings, and niece for being the wonderful people that they are. As our shared roots further entwine, I already feel something beyond gratitude for all of them. I can't wait to make more memories with them and find out how tall my tree can grow. Our next essay is from my friend, Tony Scruggs. Tony is a former Major League Baseball player who now works to teach empathy to everyone he encounters. He's such a special person, and I'm so happy to share him with all of you. I was taught that gratitude is fuel for the soul, and that receiving gratitude is just as important to our nervous system as knowing how to give it. So in a way... I learned that gratitude was three things, a feeling, a gift, and something that you can catch. My story is about feeling grateful for three different life dreams that have come true, plus an amazing surprise that even to this day, I'm still grateful to have experienced. 
But first, a quick heads up on how to give and receive, in other words, catch, gratitude empathically. Now, giving gratitude is about saying what the other person did, saying how you feel about what the other person did, and then including the unmet need that was honored for you by what the other person did. For example, when a friend of mine changed her entire schedule to drive me to LAX, I said, oh, thanks for driving me to the airport. I so appreciate the courtesy. Behavior, driving me to the airport. Feeling, gratitude. Met need, the awesome courtesy. Since she already knew how to catch a gratitude, she responded with, I'm so grateful to hear that. Glad that I could help. The gratitude circle was connected and activated. Make sense? You ready for the story? All right. So when I was little, I used to watch the TV show The Jeffersons with my mom. Every time the theme song got to now we're up in the big leagues, getting our turn at bat, my American of African ancestry mother and I would dance around the house. One time after the show was over, when I was about seven years old, my mom asked me what I wanted to be in life. Not really having a clear answer, I thought about the Jeffersons and replied, I want to be a baseball player and an actor, having done neither of the two before that moment. Fourteen years later, I was sitting in the Texas Rangers clubhouse with a locker next to Nolan Ryan on my first opening day. President Bush had just congratulated me on being there, and I was so moved that my laughter shed tears of gratitude. Can you feel the through line back to my mom? Rest in peace. And a seed planted by Norman Lear and the Jeffersons? Thank you, Mr. Lear. Now, 20 years later, after a bunch of people telling me how hard it is to get your Screen Actors Guild card, I was sitting in my first principal trailer on the set of the movie Valentine's Day. And this time, it was just a straight flow of gratitude tears. The idea had been so ingrained that even other people's doubt couldn't make a dent. Moving on up to the east side, we finally got a piece of the pie. Whew. Before I give gratitude for the third dream that's come true, and by the way, during all of this, I've been broke, I've had a little money, but my parents always taught me that wealth was about spiritual abundance, with the term poor being similar to a less than identity. So in my mind, I've always considered myself wealthy. So as I was saying, before I give a gratitude for the third dream, I want to give a quick shout out to my UCLA brothers and sisters who threw me an amazing surprise party back in the day. I'm telling you, there is something so validating, especially when you're like me, when you're outnumbered 99 to 1 ethnically. There is something so validating about a bunch of kids with ethnic group privilege making a very special moment all about you. Thank you, UCLA peeps. The third dream that's playing out right now 
is following in my mom's footsteps, PhD in psychology, following in my mom's footsteps and living for the well-being of our fellow members of Team Humanity, using all of the tools and philosophies of empathy that I've gathered along the way. That is the third dream that's come true that's playing out right now. And during this season of giving thanks, I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm extremely grateful for the adventure. Wait, did I even mention India and the Gandhi's grandson? Well, I'm extremely grateful for the adventurous and privileged life that I've had to honor, that I've had the honor to lead, including the painful intergenerational wounds that were that I've inherited. In this moment, I feel spiritually grateful. I have gratitude that you've stayed with me till the end of this story. And my only question now is, are you able to catch the gratitude that I'm throwing you with the intention and the love that it's being given? And if you are, just say to yourself, Tony, I receive it wholeheartedly. Are you smiling? Happy Thanksgiving, Team America. And happy season of giving thanks, Team Humanity. So if you're wondering who the heck is talking to you, my name is Tony Scruggs, and I'm an empathic relanguaging and inclusive diversity coach who specializes in trauma-informed non-violence for communication. Wow, that's a whole big mouthful. Basically just helping people connect and communicate more compassionately. I'm a fraternity guy from UCLA. I played pro ball for President Bush. And I received my trauma training from silence breaker Louise Godbold, the executive director of Echo Parenting. Thank you, Lou, for all of your mentorship. And on that note, sorry. <laughs> You're right. Not sorry. Our next short piece is called The Best Compliments I've Ever Received. And it's by Kayla Randolph. Kayla is a poet, editor, and all-around lover of the written word. She graduated from Emerson College in 2021 with a degree in writing, literature, and publishing, and is currently pursuing her Master's of Art in Publishing at Emerson. The best compliments I've ever received. Every word out of your mouth is a symphony. Badass. Your words truly touch people's souls. You're such a supportive presence in my life. You're going to shatter the earth with everything that you do. You're going to make your mother the happiest woman in the world with what you do. You inspire me, man. You have a lot to say and it matters. You have such a control over your unique voice. You deserve this. I'm kind of proud of you. You have a talent and a skill at this and it has been a gift watching you grow in confidence and ability. You deserve happiness. Having you is a blessing that I could never be more grateful for. I want to be just like you when I figure my life out. You really inspire me a lot and how I deal with my anxiety and everything. I'm just so glad we're friends. You are an actual angel. You deserve someone who wants you. I truly don't know how you can make literal art like that. I dig the vibe you give. The universe just needs to wait until humanity has sufficiently evolved to be worthy of your beauty and grace and love and light. Where would I be without you? You're too good looking to say that. I love that that is what you see. Annalise Baker is an 18-year-old writer native to Chicago, Illinois. 
She will graduate from Emerson College in 2025 with a bachelor's degree in creative writing. She has previously worked as a staff writer and editor for Novelty and written at the Goodman Theater, and she is currently a writer for her college's late-night show. Annalise's work has been featured in Novelty, Germ Magazine, Your Mag, and the Chi Teen Lit Festival. Here, she reads her essay, Last December. I caught the scent of Last December as the crossfade played between my ears. I could suddenly remember the feeling vividly, the culmination of six years' time that I was on some sort of precipice with both you and my future. What a peculiar notion I had to believe our futures would somehow involve each other, that we would remain entangled with our past like the loose hair ribbons in my top desk drawer. Last December, I found myself wondering where I would be today, listening to the somber rhythm of my feelings spill out onto the pages. It was three days before I was to find information that would alter the course of my life, and two days before you were to find information that would alter the course of yours. I had something I hadn't had in a long time for both of us, hope. This carried me through the next 48 hours, the anxious notion that the futures that I had created for us were going to be shattered like an antique mirror, something old and worn, but beautiful if it landed in the right hands. Blurs of my past faded as I stared out the window, recollections of what we had together playing in my mind like some kind of exposure therapy. In the most dramatic of ways, I understood our lives were truly beginning to change and that it was no longer the simple fact that our interests differed but that we were going to find ourselves in physical and mental places that vastly differed from where we had been for the past six years. Last December, I held on to you, the mirror breaking in my hands, glass beginning to steep into my skin and draw up blood the way passion tea is steeped into hot water. I began to realize how complicated our lives were becoming and that what we had was no longer easy. Sure, our feelings were easy, but the prospects of our lives as one sparked a commitment that neither one of us was willing to verbalize. I had no sense of the significance a sunburn would have, not on my skin, but also on the parts of our lives that we shared. December felt like a last chance to hold you in my arms. Unlike the way I held your face in my cold hands or the way you brushed the back of my hand, your coarse fingers burning like the metal chairs. Last December was the first sign that everything was changing. It was natural, such as the first snow, but something about the prospect of seeing the physical letters in our hands in a matter of days made it feel all the more real. It was no longer something we were working towards, but something we had worked towards. My intense feelings still spilled onto the page in Georgia, and my name still fell carefully from your cracked lips and faded yellow, yet we both knew that the period of wondering was over, and redemption seemed unlikely. Our epic was beginning to end, and the only closure I would have was the way you left, and the only closure you would have was the way I left. The same overpass that carried us through our years of connection would ultimately crumble in the wake of our absence. Those faded sunrises and inky evenings painted the backdrop for moments we shared to ourselves. Last December was the last time our lives would be considered easy, yet we both felt as though the weight of the world was crashing onto our shoulders. For this, I am grateful, as I took the pieces of our relationship with me as both a product of isolation and movement and discovered how I am in love and how I love. Reflecting on the nonsensical emotions and actions we exchanged last December, I am left with a paradoxical sense of completion that I have yet to discover in other capacities of my life. With the notions of last December in mind for our future endeavors, I can only hope you understand it the same.
Kelsey Day is a writer, environmental activist, and mental health advocate from Southern Appalachia. Her work has been published in literary journals such as The Foundationalist, Reservoir Road, Catfish Creek Literary, and Our Shared Memory Collective. Kelsey serves as the head poetry editor for the Emerson Review, and today she reads her essay, More Song Than Scream, for us. Hey, my name is Kelsey Day, and this personal essay is called More Song Than Scream. She told me first of birds that could fit in your hand, drowning in the bottom of Colorado coal mines. The air, hot and acrid, swarms down the bird's tiny lungs, and its body bursts into one final sound, more song than scream, warning the miners that they have to run. I was five, maybe six years old. She came to my kindergarten class to tell more stories, but she didn't tell that one. Some stories my grandmother saved for me. When she came to the classroom, a guest speaker, a storyteller from all the way out west, I felt like I could die with pride. That was my grandmother, my grandmother, holding a whole room of kindergartners hostage with her words. When she was done, she asked if anyone had a question. I shot my hand in the air, but I didn't have a question. I just wanted her attention, to steal it away from my classmates, to remind everyone there that she was mine. And when she called on me, I didn't have anything to say. And so in a burst of panic, I just said, I love you. On the other side of the world, perhaps in that same breath, an explosion ripped through a coal mine, 276 miles northeast of Beijing. It killed over 200 miners and trapped a dozen more underground. But the canaries were still only stories to me. I love you, I said, in front of everyone. The alphabet carpet, the duty-free lunch sign-up sheet. The teachers liked that. I think my grandmother did, too. I blushed ferociously, but it didn't matter. I'd made my point. My grandmother knows how to make a point. It's what most people don't like about her. She will stop at nothing to get her argument across. She told me about cancer early on, but it was a toothless, quiet thing, just another story. Something to worry about later. In the meantime, she taught me to knit. Crooked, laughing stitches, fumbling between the needles. When she went back west, I spent my Tuesday nights at a yarn shop with four ancient women practicing my stitches. The store manager taught me the pearl stitch between her frequent smoke breaks, scarves, headbands, muscle memory. I was learning how to knit hats when they finally booted me. It's a liability issue, the manager said on the way out. Her breath smelled like smoke. When your grandmother comes back into town, y'all can come back here together. But from now on, you've got to have an adult with you. I began to email my grandmother stories. She sent them back, the pages flooded in red. Comma, here. No, here. Sentence fragment. Where is the plot? Tell me the truth. Give me a reason to keep reading. I was 11 by then. 500 more people died in Chinese coal mines that year. I don't know how many birds that translates to. In my own country, 
39,520 women die from breast cancer. I kept writing stories. She drizzled red ink into my palms, and I drank deeply. I licked my knuckles clean. When I got old enough to write about things that hurt, I stopped sending her my stories. She read my poetry book, my book of secrets, but we didn't talk about the parts that bled. It was better if I could still be that kindergartner, the kid who raised her hand just to say I love you. She paid for me to go to college in the city. Eighteen years old, squinting between buildings, I wrote her emails on the weekends. I told her about the staggered buildings, the bright-eyed professors. I didn't tell her about my girlfriend, but I suspected she knew. I forgot about birds for a little while. The next time I returned to Colorado, the news was on fire. An excerpt from my journal in March 2020. Humans are in a bit of a situation. There's a disease and it targets those of us who have lived the longest. It targets those of us who most want to breathe. The coal mines seethed with a new sickness, a type that even the birds couldn't sense. Days later, my grandmother was diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. I showed up on her doorstep wearing a mask made from a cut-up t-shirt. She didn't hug me. We sat on the front porch six feet apart. I don't want to die bitter, she said. The wind chimes clattered, scrambled and clanged in the wind. She winced. I studied my knees. She used to love that sound. I'm angry, she said, but I don't want to die angry. I'm angry because life is good. I'm angry because I love living. If cancer can learn from its host, it learned a relentless honesty from my grandmother. The cancer never pretended to be anything other than what it was. It never pretended to be a story. I know, I said. I wondered about the birds that died mid-song. I wondered if they drew that final breath with her same sacred anger. If such a breath can produce music. My throat burned. The wind chimes crackled and seized. I remembered that day in the classroom my stubborn insistence on getting her attention, on telling her the truth. No embarrassment. No audience now. I love you, I said. And I thought about how coal mines erupt and how birds sing right before their hearts explode, how the cancer knitted into my grandmother's skin like the stitches she taught me, but the coal mines were not stories anymore. The story of cancer had shed its baby teeth the same way I shed mine. My grandmother was dying, and I couldn't even hug her. We ate Neapolitan ice cream on her porch. She cut the ice cream with a steak knife into perfect triangles, the way she did when I was a kid. We ate it with forks. I used to beg my mother to cut our ice cream the same way my grandmother did, but mom could never do it right. I love you too, my grandmother said. I love your spirit. No red lines. No corrections. Getting old is terrible, she said. But 
it's terrible because what I have here is so good. I imagine that in the moment before my grandmother dies, she will not scream. She will not cry. She will not spit bitter at the feet of the earth she loves. I imagine that, like the birds in the mines who realize they have one final breath to warn, to scream, to demand escape, that she will sing. I finished the ice cream. We told stories until the sun went down. Our final piece today comes from Ben Jackson. Ben is an award-winning writer whose work appears in the Boston Globe, WBUR's Cognoscenti, and The Hill, among other places. He's pursuing a Master of Fine Arts degree at Emerson College in Massachusetts, where he lives with his daughter, Emma. He's also the producer of this podcast and one of my very best friends. Here, he reads his essay, The Blessing of Scars. The Blessing of Scars. Occasionally when I type, a small, hard knot of scar tissue just below the base of my pinky finger will snag on the space bar, placing unintended breaks in words and slowing the rhythms of writing. As someone who makes his living as a writer, this can be an annoyance. But I'm grateful for the scar, earned a decade ago when a too-curious cat jumped on the counter as I chopped Thanksgiving carrots. It's a reminder that things which once went wrong can heal. My life has been an overabundance of scars, real and metaphorical. The white lines which trace my daughter's skin are a roadmap of her victories. They are the trophies of a collapsed lung that wouldn't kill her, of rare diseases which threw their worst at her and could not win. They are proof, displayed to the world, that she's been in more than one battle and she won them all. I carry my own scars from the two decades of living with her too often at the doorstep of death. They are the nightmares which sometimes wake me in a panic in the darkest hours of the darkest nights, 4K replays of the most terrifying moments of raising a medically fragile child. They are the echo in my head of an emergency room doctor saying, I don't like what her heart is doing, just as I start to drift back to sleep. While I regret the lost slumber, these emotional scars are a reminder that I, too, have been tested and have always risen to the challenge. The fact that they are memories of actual events shows me that the things I have survived are more terrifying than anything else my subconscious can throw at me. I do not need monsters. I have vanquished worse. Our country is sick, breaking now along old scars, the remnants of wounds suffered when enslaved people were forced to do the labor of building a new nation, and the war which ended that practice. The hurts that we as Americans feel now are deep and deadly, and the damage of this new splitting is far from done. We are bleeding, and we are broken, and there are times it can feel so desperate that it seems that amputation of the sickest parts may be the only way forward. That may be true. We may not survive as a nation of 50 states if we can't find the right medicine. But I also know that whatever injuries our country sustains will heal and scar with time that the generations which come will see things we've done now, right and wrong, good and bad, democratic and anti-democratic, and wonder at the hardships from their places of safety and prosperity. They will see the scars of our time and know that though we were sick, we were also healed. 
And so I write these words, deleting the errant spaces the scar on my hand casts, remembering the cut, the cat, and the carrots of a Thanksgiving past. I don't feel the pain of that cut anymore, but the memory of those carrots passing around the table and shared with people I love is never far from my mind. Wounds heal. Scars are the proof. I am so thankful and so grateful that you chose to spend an hour with me, listening to the stories of America and some of the people fighting to make her a better, more just, more equitable place. Thank you for being here with me. And I hope the blessings of your Thanksgiving this year grow beyond measure in years to come. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.